Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, May 22nd, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. This week, we're continuing our collaboration with the Great Sighted podcast and our discussion of issues related to women in science, technology, engineering, and math. And I'm joined by co-host Alexander Kim. Hello. Nice to be back. Welcome back. Yeah. Just to let our listeners know, you can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhcchoice.com slash minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhcchoice.com slash M-I-N-D-S. So Alex, this week we're going to be talking about women in engineering fields in particular. Yeah, and you were actually telling me about um, this book that you found about women in engineering kind of. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally by surprise. So, you know, I have a three-year-old son and now, of course, to get him to go to sleep, which is a very important activity <laughs> for all of us, um, we have to read him lots of books. And right. of course, he wants to read the same books over and over and over again. And it can be really boring for me if the story isn't great. So I stumbled across this book called Iggy Peck Architect. And it's okay. really well-written and beautifully illustrated. And it's about a little boy who builds things. Like, for example, he takes his diaper and builds a huge tower and then his parents realize those diapers aren't clean. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's the kind of book that is like partly a wink and a nod to the parents uh, and partly entertaining for the kids. Yeah, sounds like a good book. So I so enjoy reading your books to my three-year-old son and I'm delighted to find out how they came about. What made you decide to write those books and which one came first? Well, it started when my son was very young and... Um, he was one of those kids who loved to build things. This is Andrea Beatty, author of Iggy Peck, Architect. So he would build with soup cans out of the pantry and make towers or with, um, you know, jelly packets on a, on a table at diners, which waitresses hate, but that's okay. I thought it was pretty awesome. So he would make houses out of things. And I, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to write a book um, and ask the question, what if there was a kid who was passionate about architecture? Um, and so I, I wrote this story, Iggy Peck, Architect. 
So the book was a success, and then pretty soon people were asking Andrea about a sequel. And she didn't just want to write the same story again about Iggy. I'd already written that book, and I, you know, I tried for a long, long time to write another story about him, but it, I'd already done it. I didn't want to retread the same area. So we kind of came to the idea of doing uh, a book about one of the other kids in the class. So I studied all those pictures that David Roberts, who's the illustrator, he's from London, and he and I had never met or never talked at that point, actually, and which is usually how it works with picture books. So I looked at all the kids in the class, and I noticed that of the four times that you see each kid, there was one little girl, and you never would see both of her eyes. She sat there trying to be invisible. She was tiny and, and just hiding behind her bangs. And I thought, what's her story? What's that kid's tale? And it wasn't until I was talking with my aunt. And my aunt has was a, a Rosie the Riveter in World War II. She worked in a factory in Illinois um, making bullets for the Chinese army because we armed the Chinese during that conflict. And I was talking to her one day, and I thought, you know, I want to do something uh, as small as it might be, but I want to do something to say thank you because I truly believe we have an unpayable debt to that generation. And um, so I thought, I know, I'll put a Rosie the Riveter in the book. And when I did that, it all just sort of clicked together, and that's where Rosie Revere came from. So, Indre, um, you had the idea to talk to Andrea for the show today. Uh, why did you want to do that? Yeah, so I wanted to ask her if, uh, I mean, I totally assumed that it was a deliberate choice for her to, after Iggy Peck, uh, make the next two characters female. Um, and I thought it was a way to encourage girls to go into STEM fields because she chose Ada Twist uh, to be a scientist. <laughs> um, and not only is Ada Twist a girl, uh, she's also a girl of color. Uh, and I thought that was a really, you know, important and powerful choice. Um, and then there's Rosie Revere. Uh, who you know is, is there's a it's a nod to Rosie the Riveter. Right. So I wanted to find out uh, from Andrea sort of how she came across, how she came up with this notion, and and really does she have a, a kind of interest in cha changing the way girls approach STEM fields? I wish I could say I made it or an engineer because I I knew and I did know of course because I'm actually from a science background, but how much we really need to encourage girls in STEM. But I really made her an engineer because I wanted to see what David Roberts would do with the illustrations uh, because he's crazy and amazing. And so <laughs> so it worked out to get sort of a, a two, two wins there um, because he did a wonderful job. So, I mean, I fully expected that when I that your answer would be, well, I, you know, you knew there was this problem of diversity in STEM and I wanted to address it by creating these characters. And, you know, it sounds like maybe there was a part of that in you, <laughs> uh, but not explicitly. And, and I think that's really remarkable. Well, for a book to work, for it to really work and to reach an audience, it has to be a book that has truth in it. Because fiction works whenever a reader can see themselves in the story, for whatever reason. It has, but it has to speak to them. So to make that actually work without being jaded or didactic, you really... I have to start from knowing who the characters are. So I look at these books as sort of a, um, a mystery hunt where I go through and find the clues that David leaves for me and then sort of construct a, a story around them. And um, it is true that, you know, I do want, we need kids of every possible variety to go out and find their superpowers now more than ever. I mean, we need kids 
to know, to learn, are they going to be scientists? Are they going to be engineers or artists or architects? Uh, and to to embrace that about themselves. I think that's really, really essential. And one of the, the things that um, I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea that kids have a very, very important role to play in the world. And they don't always hear that from adults. They don't get that message that you are mighty and you have power and we need you to help. Well, uh, you know, as a person who adores your books, you have saved me from countless hours of mind numbing reading. <laughs> I laugh every time I read them. Um, and uh, thank, you. thank you so much. Bye bye. Okay, have a great afternoon. You too. Bye bye. Mm-hmm, so, Alex, one of the things that really surprised me in my conversation with Andrea is that it wasn't this kind of really deliberate, I'm going to set out to change the world choice to make Ada Twist and Rosie Revere the two main characters in the next two books, Um, that she took it from the illustrator and she looked at what the kids were doing in the books. uh, And that's how she you know, found their character. I mean, you know, of course, it's possible and, and likely that there's an unconscious influence here. But I thought that was really interesting. It's an extremely charming way to write books, I think. Um, <laughs> but today, we are going to be taking a deliberate look at engineering and women in engineering. Um, we're going to talk to some engineers and some people who have studied the history of women in engineering. Um Women in engineering make up about 13% of the workforce, and that makes it one of the STEM fields that is lagging behind other STEM fields like chemistry and, and bio. And something that, that has really been interesting to me is that um, if, you, if you reflect on the conversation we just heard with Andrea Beatty, um, she's sending all these, all these messages to kids and telling them about you know, what we need from them and, and, and how our future depends on them and how they should be in engineering. Um, well, you kind of hear similar messages if you go back in history, but only at the right time. And yeah, and that's pretty much the focus of our next interview. So I spoke with Amy Bix. She's uh, the author of this book. It's a history of um, women entering engineering education in America, and it's called Girls Coming to Tech! Exclamation point. A History of uh, American Engineering Education for Women. And Amy Bix, uh, she's from uh, Iowa State University, where, she's, where she studies history. Yeah, so she acknowledges the fact that the time, you know, and most recently in which uh, there was a real need for women to go into engineering uh, was in World War II. Yeah, exactly. There was this huge labor shortage and that affected engineers too. And so there were some universities and colleges in the States uh, that started up these programs that were designed to basically give women a crash course in engineering so that they could get to work in uh, helping make tanks and planes and and stuff like that. And um, Amy Bix has written about one of these programs in particular, the Curtis Wright Cadets. So Curtis Wright was one of these companies that was feeling the manpower crunch. They were a major producer of airplanes for the war effort. And so they thought it would be good for them to try try to hire, if not full-fledged women engineers. They were hoping to get women as what they called engineering aides, people who could help out with the calculations and some of the more basic works, which would in turn free up, as they saw it, their fully qualified male engineers for other work. So the company made arrangements with seven colleges here in the United States, including my own Iowa State, for each of these seven colleges to train 
roughly 100 women in the basics of aeronautical engineering and production engineering. So they put ads in college newspapers around the country looking for women who had at least some experience with basic math. And they picked up about 700 of these women, sent them to these seven campuses. And those women got basically a nine-month immersion, a crash course in things like engineering drafting, engineering calculations, flight theory, aeronautical engineering. And after they finished that program, they were sent to the Curtis Wright plants to help with production. So it really made a difference on campuses. My own Iowa State, for example, that had been co-educational since the beginning, but women had usually majored in home economics or the humanities. So to have a hundred women appear on campus suddenly studying aeronautical engineering, where in previous years maybe you had one or two women a year studying engineering, that made headlines. So when you suddenly had a hundred women show up during this wartime atmosphere, it completely changed the atmosphere of the place. Yeah, tell me about that. How did the male students in these programs react, and how did these schools sort of deal with this? Well, it is fun to see the way that different schools deal with it. At the University of Minnesota, which was one of these universities hosting the Curtis Wright cadets, the students talked about a professor who walked into class on the first day, looked at them, and suddenly burst out laughing. And when he recovered, he admitted that he'd never had an engineering classroom full of women before. (laughs) Wow. So it was an adjustment for the professors. As for the students... There's a, there's a lot of joking at first and a lot of questions about what these women were doing here, but it was wartime. I've seen advertisements where for the cadet program where they literally showed these women with their arms full of engineering equipment, the slide rule, the drafting board. They've got the women drawn, literally walking arm in arm with Uncle Sam, with an American flag draped around their shoulders. So the whole patriotic aspect makes it more acceptable than it would have been otherwise. But even so, just the culture clash, there's one story of in the first week when they had the cadet program at Rensselaer Polytechnic, which had been all male before that, one of the cadets told the story about how she got her tray in the cafeteria and she went to the head of a flight of stairs, which led down to the area where the tables were. And she suddenly realized that all those tables were full of men and they were just staring at her because They literally hadn't seen women in the cafeteria before that. And so under that pressure, she says, she basically dropped her tray and fell down the stairs, the poor woman. So it does have some interesting aspects. Oh, my goodness. No kidding. Tell me more about what life was like for the cadets. Like, um, why do they want to be engineers? And, and what was it like when they arrived and started their studies? That's a great question. Well, there were a couple of them who had thought about engineering before. A couple of them, for example, who'd grown up with their father on the farm fixing machinery or had brothers who were interested in aviation. But out of that 700 women, most of them had never really thought seriously before this about engineering as an option for them. But again, it was partially the patriotic atmosphere. They were looking for a way to serve their country in the war effort, and this seemed like a good opportunity. They got paid. They got a stipend while they were studying as Curtis cadets. It seemed as if they would be making a good contribution. So that motivated a number of them. 
Um, I was there's some fun little anecdotes in the book about um, the jokes that they would have amongst each other. Like they started smoking pipes in class as a kind of a joke to, about fitting in and being manly. Uh, yes, yes. Well, as you say, these women are very conscious of their position as women in a field that historically been almost all male. And so they do joke about it. And as you said, some of them start smoking pipes. And there's a certain amount of tension over the fact that, for example, they have to wear pants when they're doing shop work. Because at that time, a number of campuses had rules against women wearing pants on campus. And even where there weren't formal rules, it was kind of frowned on. So when these Curtis Wright cadets were walking across campus for shop work in their dungarees, they kind of got some snide remarks, often from other women. And so they had to write to the campus paper and explain what they were doing. But there was a bit of backlash because of that, too. Wow. So then what happens, um, what happens when the war is over? Well, what happens when the war is over? First of all, the women who got jobs as Curtis Wright cadets, there were a few of them who stayed on and began doing engineering work in peacetime, either staying on at Curtis Wright or going to other companies. But most of the women moved on, kind of the broader history of World War II, where the veterans come back from overseas, they expect to settle down with their wives or girlfriends and start a family. And really what happens after World War II is you do get kind of that 1950s conservative gender role backlash where the expectation was sort of what everybody thinks of as the leave it to beaver stereotype. For example, the dean of engineering at Penn State wrote a newspaper article where he flatly said that women didn't belong in engineering. He said that aside from a few exceptions, they simply didn't have the mental talent. And even if they did, few companies, he said, were willing to risk $10,000 to hire a beautiful blonde engineer. So they're facing real skepticism from within the engineering community, but even so, the number of women pursuing engineering does actually continue to rise very slowly in the 50s and 60s. The interesting thing about World War II is that suddenly all these women were in engineering, albeit in in kind of like diminished roles, but um, they were there, and then the war ends, and there's this backlash, and we're kind of more or less back at square one, and if not square one, maybe square, you know, two. Um, where do we go from there? Like, how do we? How, do, how did women fight against that skepticism and that that sexism that was keeping them out? Well, part of the real thing that made a difference was change at a few individual institutions, institutions such as. Georgia Tech and Caltech, which had been all male for various reasons, they decide to open engineering on their campuses to women in the 50s and 60s. Another thing that makes a difference is the feminist movement, both directly and indirectly. It provides a lot of the support mechanisms that women need for getting ahead in engineering, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And another thing that makes a difference is women in engineering themselves. In the 50s, the 
relatively small but significant number of women engineers in the United States formed a new organization, the Society of Women Engineers, SWE. It's still around, still very important, but they explicitly created that organization as a mechanism to mentor younger women, to encourage them to go into engineering, and to support the community of women engineers against the obstacles that they were facing. So, women in engineering really made a difference for themselves in many ways. A lot of times when people talk about women in STEM or more specifically about women in engineering today, they're talking about um, increasingly not education, but the workplace, because we're a lot closer to gender parity in schools. A lot of women are graduating with uh, bachelor's degrees, but, um, but the workplace is slower to change. And I was wondering, are there are there uh, lessons from from the history that you've studied of the early days of women gaining um, acceptance and and making a place for themselves in in these fields? Are there lessons from history for how to sort of move forward today and and keep breaking down those barriers? As you say, a number of the challenges now aren't so much with getting access to engineering education, but with moving into the workplace and women's success there. And I think really what we found is just how incredibly complicated this question of gender and engineering and science and technology and culture are, because it's not so much a matter now of people coming out and saying the way the Penn State dean did in the 1950s, that women don't belong in engineering. It's usually not quite as blatant as that, although unfortunately you still see that far more often than you should. But instead what we're having to deal with are, first of all, broader questions about women's equity in the workplace in the United States. So there we're talking about things like sexual harassment, which is by no means limited to engineering and tech companies, but is a broader issue. Women's challenges, balancing career and family, again, a broader workplace issue, chances of getting ahead, promotion, equal pay, all things like that. So a lot of it aren't things that are limited to engineering, but broader questions about women and the workforce. And then something else we found over the years is just how important small but subtle cues are regarding gender and technology, things that young men and young women pick up really starting very early, as early as kindergarten and grade school, regarding expectations about femininity and masculinity, and then the way those come down through the years. And those are incredibly hard to fight. So really, that's what we're dealing with now. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Professor Bix. Oh, it's been my pleasure. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with more interviews with women in engineering. This episode is sponsored by MHC Choice. Now, I don't know about you, but a few years ago, I discovered Scandinavian crime fiction. And I have to say, I'm hooked. About every fifth novel I read is by somebody who's from a Scandinavian country. And I love the dark stories with really interesting, complicated characters. Writers like Jo Nesbo and Camilla Lackbird and Stig Larsson. Now, imagine if you could, instead of having to read those books, watch shows. Well, you might think the majority of the shows that get produced by Scandinavian authors will be in Scandinavian languages, but what if you could watch them with English subtitles? 
That's what MHC Choice provides. They feature European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. I've recently gotten into a show called Spiral, which is in French and features really interesting characters and totally unpredictable storylines. Other award-winning series include Detective Montalbano, Volander, and many more. They have TV adaptations of some of the world's best crime fiction writers like Agatha Christie or Donna Leone. New content is added each week, so you always have something new to watch. And of course, they all come with English subtitles. You'll get that, plus the entire MHC Choice library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV for only $7.99 a month. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days, and after that, you'll save 50% off your first month. Visit mhgchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhgchoice.com M-I-N-D-S. We thank them for supporting this podcast. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you also support us. Cited Podcast is a documentary radio show about how big ideas change ordinary life in North America. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes to never miss an episode, like this one, The Heroin Clinic. Can you remember the first time that you actually, like, walked into the clinic and got heroin that taxpayers paid for? Yeah, it was great, because you're thinking, hmm. Oh, I can take any amount of heroin they're going to give me. I'm going to take it. They sit there and say, look, don't worry about the dope. We've got more than you can do. Um, but then not much longer. That very morning. Threw us right out in the cold, basically. Three months is up, winged you down. Here's your last day. See you later. The Heroin Clinic, available right now for free. Go to sightedpodcast.com and subscribe to Sighted on iTunes. Careful, careful, watch his head. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds. I'm Alexander Kim. And I'm Andrea Viscontis. We were just talking to Amy Bix, professor of history at Iowa State University. She was telling us about how women first got into engineering, and it was through these sort of um, cadet programs during World War II. So, so that was highlighting a time in American engineering history where, you know, there was a real push towards including women. Um, and you would think that as a result of that, uh, you would continue to have a high representation of women in the field. But that's not what happened. Yeah. How long has it been since World War II? It's like... Yeah, it's a few years. It's been a few years. <laughs> and, you know, you still see a lot of the similar problems that the, the first women to enter engineering faced. And that's what happened to Monique Ross. Uh, Monique is a professor at Florida International University, but she used to be a software engineer working at Raytheon, which is this uh, defense contractor. And um, she was in the field for a long time, but eventually found she had to leave. You study the, um, the experiences of women and people of color in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and of course, you're a woman of color yourself, and you have worked as an engineer yourself. So I wanted to ask you, how did you, how did you end up in, in, in software engineering? Because you worked as a software engineer, right? Yes, I did. I did. So I, um, my undergraduate degree was actually in computer engineering. And um, unlike some, I didn't have the foresight to do like the forecasting when I graduate in four years, will they be employing people in this field? And when I graduated, that meant um, at that time, the high uh, demand and employment was in software engineering. 
So I packed up and moved from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana to take a position at a defense contractor as a software engineer. And I worked as a software engineer on and off for 11 years. So I worked um, for six years and then I went and taught for two years. And then I went back and and worked uh, in industry for another five years. Mm. What what attracted you to to the field? What did you like about it? Uh, if I'm going to be completely honest and transparent, um, when I was a freshman in high school, um, I was doing really well in math, and um, I had gone to my math teacher and said, "Hey, you know, what can you do when you excel in math? Like, what kind of pathways do you have?" And he says, "Well, you can be an accountant, or you can be an engineer." And I thought, "Well, accounting doesn't sound like fun at all." <laughs> and um, so I kind of latched onto the idea that. Um, that that was what I was going to be. Now, I had no idea what that meant um, until I went to college and I started off at a community college. And again, I'm in this um, introductory engineering class and they're like, okay, what kind of engineering discipline do you want to um, concentrate in? And I was like, well, engineering. And they were like, no, there's a lot more than that. And uh, so I started to dig a little bit deeper. And, you know, there's a, a vast list of engineering disciplines. And so I went, this is old school where you could go to the library and get the occupational book. And mm. then you could thumb through it. And one of the pages was highest paid careers, right? And at the very top, <laughs> number one at the time was computer engineering. So I thought, well, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And rich, yeah. <laughs> I want to be rich. That's right. I want to make money. That's what I want to do. So I wish I could give you this like glorious, fantastical story about how Mm -hmm. I used to like take apart TVs or something like that. But I would be (laughs) lying to you. That was not the case. It was just sort of worked out that way. And it turned out to not be a a bad fit after all. Right. Well, it makes sense. It's a total, it's maybe the most, uh, (laughs) most uh, rational way to choose a career. (laughs) (laughs) It worked for me. Yeah. So, so when did you start work as an engineer? Um, I started in 2000, and um, when I got there, uh, they hadn't hired a new person in like 15 years. So I was the youngest new person. And then they started like a wave, so they hired a whole bunch of us at the same time. But there there weren't many um, young people in a while, so there was this huge gap between those that were there and us sort of newbies that came in. Um demographics wise, there weren't a lot of, uh, ethnic or racial minorities and there weren't a lot of women. In fact, um, I think I had watched a presentation at that time and it was like 92% white males at that particular site. So, um, the demographics were pretty skewed in one direction versus another. So tell me about that. What was that like? It was interesting. It was interesting. Um, in this case, I was the only person under the age of 30. I was the only black person. I was the only woman you know, and so it was, there was definitely, and I, I was single and everybody was married. So there was all these weird sort of isolating dynamics that sort of compounded all together. Um, I started to notice that the cohort that I came in with of, of new folks and, and women and minorities in particular um, weren't being retained beyond two years. They were leaving. And, you know, this was kind of where my, my journey into my doctoral program and into my um, dissertation work started was I started to realize that there was these ebb and flows. You would see these um, sort of like sprints by the company to try to attract and retain or try to attract rather women and people of color into the field. And then within two years, you'd see them gone. And so the retention rate was not very high. And I started to wonder, was it 
you know, was it the company? Was it the site? Because we were kind of in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. Was it um, the discipline? Was it the industry? What exactly were the contributing factors to this sort of um, this roll in and then quick roll out of folks out of engineering? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you when you got there, uh, and and like you said, you started to feel a bit um, singled out for the first time, or a bit, <laughs> you know, like you're the only one in the room. How did, like how did that affect you? What what was uh what were your working days like? It was a little I mean it was a little rough in the beginning because you I think there's sort of a natural inclination to try to fit in, right? And so you try to find ways to establish authentic, what I'm using, I use air quotes, you can't see them, right? Authentic um, relationships with the people that you work with. And so um, in the very beginning, I tried to do things like, <laughs> it's, it's a funny, funny, not funny story. The guys that I used to work with used to go running mm-hmm. all the time, like right after you know, I guess maybe it must've been right after lunch, maybe not right after lunch, but in the afternoons, they would go running and they were like, Monique, you should go with us. And I was like, no, I don't really run. And they're like, no, 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 we don't run that far. We just run like a mile or two. And I had no point of reference because I wasn't a runner, right? The first, most I ever ran was 400 yards. So like right. what, what, what was a mile, right? And <laughs> to me at the time, I was like, oh, it can't be that bad, right? It's just one, right? And then, and then I don't know if it was some sort of hazing or not, but they took me running for six miles. Right. <laughs> six miles. I almost died while running with them, right? But then, and I, I think they found some humor in it. But I, so then I was committed to not letting that ever happen to me again. And so then I started running, right? And then, uh. like another another instance was uh, golfing, right? Golfing was really big. They had these, you know, two or three golf outings a, a year, and then everybody went golfing, you know, so many times a week, and they had these leagues and stuff. And again, I didn't golf, right? And mm-hmm. I didn't own clubs. I didn't know any of the rules. I didn't know anything about the game. But I felt like in order to have these authentic relationships with my coworkers, I needed to like, when in Rome, do what Romans do, right? Like yeah. in, in software engineering, you better pick up a golf club. So I started golfing and I hated it, right? So then I, you know, I was, I kept trying to adapt and kept trying to do these things that I thought would help to establish these authentic relationships. And I just ended up sort of miserable. Yeah. So I've started, I've tried to pick up um, new hobbies or new sports or whatever when I've started new jobs. Like one time I, I tried to pick up tennis and then I was so bad at it that the, the guy who had invited me to play never wanted to play with me again. But that kind of experience feels pretty normal to me. Um, is it different for women or people of color? So I think, uh, I, well, I think there's a number of things, but I think one of the, the, the bigger things, like even trying to, to, to get back to your point is, um, I, I was one of, of 1200, mm-hmm. right? And so every time I went into the room, um, I was the only woman and I was certainly the only black woman, right? Yeah. And, um, that sets the tone for a number of things. It sets the tone for where, how I, um, talk within that space, what I talk about, right? So like, um, I think when I was, I was still there, I think when like Trayvon Martin happened, right? So mm. there's this big sort of controversy around the the young black man who was shot, right? And I can't, I can't participate in that conversation like others can, right? right. And and I'll, and I'll give even another, I'll give a, 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 a specific example. After Hurricane Katrina happened, um, one of my coworkers came to my office and he says, what is wrong with your people? Wow. And I said, um... 
excuse me? He said, in Louisiana. I said, but I'm from Pennsylvania. Because I didn't even understand what he was talking about. Like I was, I was, I don't know, hadn't read the newspaper that day. I don't know. Mm. But, you know, and I said, I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania. And he's like, no, black people. What is wrong with black people? Why won't they just leave Louisiana? And the expectation was that A, I was expected to answer that question, yeah. right? <laughs> and I was not expected to be offended by that question either, right? Like he was mm-hmm. serious. He was, and- I wish I could say that those are isolated incidences, but they're not, right? On a regular basis, I was reminded, you know, that I was different within that space. You know, I think fundamentally we all ever want to just fit in, right? We all ever want to be um, sort of accepted within a space and feel like we belong within that space. But if you're always having to be sort of guarded by these um, consistent and constant reminders that you're different within that space. It makes it a little bit hard. And then you spend arguably a lot of time thinking about that versus thinking about the problem that you're solving or the right. innovation that you're trying to create. You know, you have all this sort of cognitive power being soaked up by what what really doesn't matter, right? Right. It must be exhausting. It can be. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly can be. Well, uh, Professor Ross, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Thank you uh, for thinking about me and uh, having this chat. I appreciate it. So stories like Monique's are unfortunately far too common. But there are some women, of course, who have continued to stay in engineering and have thrived despite many obstacles. One such woman is Dr. Patricia Galloway. She's the president, CEO, and chairman of Pegasus Global Holdings. Um, She's a civil engineer. She was the president, the first female president of the American Society of Civil Engineers. And she's had extensive experience with all kinds of transportation projects, including airports, bridges, highways, mass transit, canals and ports, and other heavy infrastructure projects like mining, process plants, tunnels, and complex structures. So, you know, if you think about the least, you know, stereotypically female roles in engineering, uh, I feel like Patricia Galloway really embodies a lot of those. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Patricia Galloway. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about how you got into civil engineering in particular. Well, engineering was was kind of interesting how I got into it to begin with. I had no intention of being an engineer. I was either going to be an interior designer, I was going to be a lawyer or an interpreter for the UN. And it wasn't until my senior year in high school that a professor, a civil engineering professor, came to the University of Kentucky to talk to us during career day. And he had these beautiful renderings of buildings up on the drawings. Uh, on the walls, which of course, he had a little bit of a white lie because they were really architectural drawings, not civil engineering drawings. But he had my attention because I really liked to draw and I used to draw um, actually buildings as well. And so I raised my hand and I said, wow, do civil engineers do that? And he went, oh, yes. And we need young ladies into the engineering profession so badly. You could just write your ticket no matter where you wanted to go or what you wanted to do. So that's when I decided I wanted to be a civil engineer. Um, And uh, the story was kind of interesting after that on some of the the things I faced from my guidance counselor and math teacher regarding that decision. But that's how I became actually interested in civil engineering. So was he right? Was was it were you able to write your own ticket uh, or were there some obstacles that you had to overcome? 
Well, the first obstacle I had to come was the fact that people didn't believe that I could actually be an engineer. I went home to my mom and told her I no longer wanted to be that interior decorator or interpreter or lawyer. And my mother, who has been fantastic with me, is because uh, my father passed away when I was 14 months old and I'm an only child in my mother's project of all these years. And she said, you can do anything you want. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. And so I became pretty excited and I went to my guidance counselor the very next day and told them that I wanted to be a civil engineer. And he looked at me and said, that's a really bad idea. You'll flunk out. You don't have the aptitude to be an engineer. So that was a little depressing. I went to my math teacher, a woman who I thought would be very excited about my decision. And I told her that I no longer wanted to be that interior decorator or that lawyer or that um, uh, interior designer. And she said, engineering? No, that's a bad idea. You'll flunk out. You're not smart enough to be an engineer. And then when I went to, um, to my grandparents and I told my grandmother that that weekend, she then looked at me and said, wow, isn't that a man's job? So that sort of solidified my going into civil engineering. <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, though, I was bound and determined to probably be the best civil engineer I could. So I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit about your experience in construction in particular. I mean, I, I know you come on a construction site in a position of authority uh, as, you know, the engineer on site versus, you know, someone who's a, a sort of a day laborer or a worker. Um, but you must have encountered a culture on a construction site. I mean, I'm just assuming that, that there there is a culture given the stereotype. Maybe it's gone now. Uh, but have you had to face sort of unprofessional behavior? And if you had, how do you deal with it? Well, I've uh, I have had a couple pretty interesting um, incidents over my career. My first one was actually almost right out of school. I was put on a construction site to be a second shift inspector on a tunnel job in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was actually the first woman tunnel inspector in the state of Wisconsin. And I remember it vividly at the pre-construction meeting. We had all three inspectors and the project manager sitting at the table. And it was an elderly um, Italian contractor. The owner was there. And I still remember him pointing his finger at me. He never looked at me he, as he was almost yelling at the project manager saying, that woman will not go down in my tunnel. I had no idea back in those days that women were bad luck in tunnels. I had no idea. Um, and before I was getting ready to say something, my project manager kicked me under the table, which I'm pretty good at hints. I thought that was probably a reason for me not to open my mouth. And the project manager said, you know, I'll be more than glad to award this to the next lowest bidder tomorrow. Everything worked out great. I mean, when I do remember when I got out on the site, that uh, it was clearly that I was not wanted. And when I, when I was first lowered down into the, to the shaft uh, by a cage with a crane, the crane operator tried to scare me by swaying that really, really um, quickly and pretty ferociously across. And my grandpa, who was in the, the construction industry for the road department, had always um, sort of given me advice as to male 
the male population in the construction industry and to use it as a little bit of humor where I could to deflect such um, negative or what I would call almost harassment. So I yelled out and said, you know, I've had much better rides on the amusement park rides. And um, but it was kind of funny. I had another incident uh, much later in my career. I do a lot of work on nuclear power plants. And I was on a particular site uh, where they were in an outage situation. And so there were crews that were uh, cleaning, cleaning out um, and preparing for exchange of new fuel rods. And so they obviously had the protective clothing on. And um, I can remember at uh, one point, one of the men thought he was going to be cute. And because I was the only woman in the, the group that was touring the plant. And so he decided to drop his protective clothing, of course, with nothing on underneath. And uh, of course, at this point in my career, I've become a lot more hardened to the situation. So I just sort of looked him up and down. And then I commented to one of my male uh, counterparts walking with me loud enough for him to hear it. I commented and saying, wow, rather small, don't you think? Um, of which his team members at that time gave him a real wrath and probably he won't do that again. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it has been um, interesting. While there has certainly been some funny, what I would call funny roadblocks along the way, I have absolutely been able to do whatever I've wanted to do. I have had worked with um, some of the greatest people in the world. I've worked with uh, some of the, on the largest projects in the world. And I became the first woman president in its 152 years of history in, in 2004. And it's the largest civil engineering organization in the world. So that was that was wonderful for me because I was able to break that glass ceiling within the American Society of Civil Engineers. And now we are on our fourth woman president with this last election being two women running against each other. And from there, I then was appointed by President Bush to be on the National Science um, Board, which oversees the National Science Foundation. That really came from my ability to, to be the president of the American Society of Civil Engineers. And now I am sitting on the Granite Construction Board of Directors, which is just an amazing opportunity. So yes, I actually think it has been an amazing career and I would never change anything about it. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds, Patricia Galloway. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I found Patricia Galloway extremely interesting and really inspiring. You know, I think it's it's important for us to remember that there are women who not only stay in STEM fields, but also thrive and do extraordinarily well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really seems to be a force <laughs> to be reckoned yeah. with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And in fact, you know, there is there is some evidence that civil engineering, among other engineering fields, is doing better uh, when it comes to women uh, represented in the field uh, than, say, you know, computer science. Yeah, relatively better. Um, relatively better. <laughs> yeah, it's not so like good. <laughs> about uh, 17 and a half, like 17.5 percent of uh, civil and architectural engineers are women, which doesn't sound very high, but it's it's relatively pretty good for you know, subfields of engineering. 
Yeah, and I think I think that probably includes um, sort of if we we're including architectural engineers, uh, because the statistic that Patricia Galloway quoted to me was that right now it's about 11 percent. And again, I think it depends on which subfields you include, um, whether you include more architecture design related uh, versus, you know, some other parts of civil engineering. But it's still, you know, I think it's totally uh, accurate to say it's somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, which is still uh, not great. Mm hmm. Well, um, I think that wraps up our sort of our little dip into the world of engineering. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that uh, I think that the ultimately there is a lot of hope for the future, uh, at least by addressing some of these issues. Uh, we can help to change and, and bring awareness to these toxic workplace environments. Mm -hmm. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And Alex, in particular, I want to thank you and the rest of the staff at Cited for this really interesting two-episode collaboration. Oh, yeah, no, it was our pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, doing it with us. <laughs> My pleasure. We also want to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. You should also, of course, check out Cited, which is available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Alexander Kim. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhcchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhcchoice.com M-I-N-D-S. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.